This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. Words of Integration and Guidance by Megan McKenna. There was a woman who wanted peace in the world and peace in her heart and all sorts of good things, but she was very frustrated. The world seemed to be falling apart. She would read the papers and get depressed. One day she decided to go shopping and she went into a mall and picked a store at random. She walked in and was surprised to see Jesus behind the counter. She knew it was Jesus, though she couldn't explain why. She looked again and again at him, and finally she got up her nerve and asked, Excuse me, are you Jesus? I am, he replied. Do you work here? (laughs) No, Jesus said, I I own the store. (laughs) What do you sell here, she said. Oh, just about anything. Anything? Yep, anything you want. What do you want? She said, I I don't know. Well, Jesus said, feel free, walk up and down the aisles and make a list. See what it is you want, and then come back, and we'll see what we can do for you. So she did just that. She walked up and down the aisles. There was peace on earth, no more war, no hunger or poverty, peace in families, no more drugs, harmony, clean air, careful use of resources, She wrote furiously. By the time she got back to the counter, she had a long list. Jesus took the list, skimmed through it, looked at her and smiled, no problem. And then he bent down behind the counter and picked out all sorts of things. He stood up and laid out the packets. She asked, what are these? And Jesus replied, seed packets. This is a catalog store. She said, you mean I don't get the finished product? No, this is a place of dreams. You come and see what it looks like, and I give you the seeds. You plant the seeds and go home and nurture them and help them to grow, and someone else reaps the benefits. Oh, she said, and she left the store without buying anything. Now reading from Scripture from Psalm Chapter 119, verses 25 to 32, as rendered by Nan Merrill. With my heart's ear, I hear the injunction to pray for my enemies, even those who persecute me. How can I, weak and fear-filled, heed this difficult teaching? Help me to understand the way of your precepts and give me the strength to follow through. My soul is willing, O merciful one, yet the body would flee. Who is the enemy from whom I run? But the fears hidden in the shadows within. Strengthen me according to your word. Lead me gently into the light. For I have chosen the way of faithfulness. With trust in you, I will face my darkness, my own darkness. I will not run from the fears that beset me so that each one may be transformed in your love. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to Matthew 5, 38 to 48. 
You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist the evil person. And if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn your other cheek as well. If someone wants to sue you for your shirt, give him your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go a mile with him, go a second mile with him. Give to whoever asks of you, and do not turn away one who wants to borrow from you. You've also heard it said, you will love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Yet I say to you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may become the children of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise over the evil and the good. And he brings the rains to the just and the unjust among us. If you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only those who are your friends, how have you done more than others? Have you done more than the Gentiles? Be perfect as your Father, the Heavenly One, is perfect. Because this is such a good text, I'm going to read it again, but a different translation. So the second translation is from the message. Here's another old saying that deserves a second look. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Is that going to get us anywhere? Here's what I propose. Don't hit back at all. If someone strikes you, stand there and take it. If someone drags you into court and sues for the shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. And if someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit-for-tat stuff. Live generously. You're familiar with the old written law, love your friend and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer, for then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives us his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish, to everyone, regardless, the good and bad, the nice and nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word, what I'm saying is, grow up. Your kingdom subjects now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives toward you. For the word of God in Scripture... For the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. One of my favorite parts about being a dad is getting to read to my kids. And 
We've read a lot of different books, but particularly when they were younger, some favorites of ours were the Berenstain Bears. Right? This brings you back a little. And they have some delightful stories with some, you know, good moral lessons for children. And this is about the Berenstain Bears' new neighbors. And if you can see the cover, you see the neighbors are pandas. So perhaps it's about neighbors who aren't just like we are. So I like that. There's a Berenstain Bears love their neighbors. The Berenstain Bears think of those in need. These are some good bears. <laughs> I, I want to be their neighbors, you know. And then I came across this one called The Berenstain Bears and the Bully. Uh, okay, let's see what's going to happen here. And as you can see, this book itself has been beat up a little. We don't even have the cover. <laughs> and it says on the front page here, if a cub gets beat up, that's usually when she vows to make sure it doesn't happen again. Starts a little ominously. And as we turn the page, we see Sister Bear walking home sad from school and imagining some things. And she's imagining herself in a kamikaze plane with a bomb attached to it. She's imagining herself flying with a cape, riding a horse with a jousting stick, driving a tank, and carrying a medieval-style ball and chain instrument of torture. So a lot going on with Sister Bear, apparently. Well, the story begins uh, that one day Mom, Mama Bear and Papa Bear were in the yard and Sister Bear came home crying and they said, what happened to you, Sister Bear? Did you fall? Did you get hurt? She said, no. And Brother Bear says, I can tell you what happened. She got beat up. And Sister Bear says, that's right, I got beat up and it wasn't for any reason at all. And she starts crying. Outrageous, Lord Papa Bear. Where's my hat? I'm going over to that playground right now. Mama Bear says, no, you don't. Settle down. Settle down. First, we have to take care of Sister Bear. And so they look around, and then suddenly they say, where's Brother Bear? Well, Brother Bear went off to the playground to figure out who exactly was this bully. And it was a bear named Tuffy. <laughs> Even got a shirt with the name Tuffy. You know, any good bully knows what shirt to wear. Well, Brother Bear thinks of a plan, and he goes and gets a sack of beans and sets it up in the basin and puts a picture on it of Tuffy. And then he goes to the library and gets a book called The Art of Self-Defense. <laughs> and he teaches Sister Bear how to defend herself. So you can see her slugging the sack of beans. And with Brother's help, she learned the left jab, the right cross, the left hook, the uppercut. She learned to duck. <laughs> and she punched Mama's dried beans silly. Well, she showed up at school the next day on the playground, and who did she come across but Tuffy? And she was ready. And as Tuffy charged, Sister Bear ducked and missed the punch, and she socked her with a square right on the nose. Or socked her square on the nose, right, with a right cross. And boom, Tuffy was down for the count. So, Berenstain Bears and the Bully. If a cub gets beat up, that's usually when she vows never 
to let it happen again. So, you know, you're reading books to your children, and you, you learn some things. You learn some things. But, you know, it is innately human, isn't it, to defend ourselves, to stand up for ourselves, to resist someone who's taking advantage of us, and perhaps, if needed, to take revenge. Right? There's just something deep within us that just wants to respond in that way. One of my favorite 80s movies is The Karate Kid. Classic story of a kid who moves across country, I think from New Jersey to California. He's the new kid in town, troublemaking friends, gets beat up by the local bully, and then he finds a mentor. So really it's the same storyline as Berenstain's Bears and the Bully, only instead of Brother Bear training Sister Bear, it's Mr. Miyagi training Danielson in karate. Wax on, wax off, exactly. And after we see Daniel get beat up again and again, our sympathies are clearly on his side. But then his chance for redemption or revenge comes. The All-Valley Karate Championships. And I'm assuming you know how the story goes, but if you don't, I'll highlight it. So he enters into, after going through some training with this karate master, Mr. Miyagi, uh, he enters into this karate championship, as does his nemesis, Johnny Lawrence. Well, they're both advancing along in the tournament, but then Daniel gets injured by someone from the Bullies Dojo. And it seems like he might be out of the tournament altogether, but never fear, Mr. Miyagi steps in and rubs his hands together and does some sort of Eastern magical thing and puts his hands on him. And he can limp back out for the championship round. And who does he face but none other than the bully that we have learned to highly dislike for the last 90 minutes of watching this film. And who among us is not just rooting and standing and excited, right? When he pulls that pose and he has his hands up and he does that little one-footed, you know, jump kick thing. And he knocks out the bully and the music happens and the girlfriend runs out and Mr. Miyagi stands there beaming. I mean, right? We're cheering. We love it. We might even rewind that scene just to watch it again. Or as my kids say, backwards it. They don't, they don't rewind, they backwards it. But there's just something that feels so right about it. Justice is served. And so this longing to get back at our enemies is as old as time, and the theme is woven throughout our literatures, our movies, our stories. And often it's what makes a great story. Whether it's Aslan taking out the White Witch, or Harry Potter taking on Voldemort, I mean, he who should not be named. Or Katniss Everdeen taking on President Snow, or Marty McFly taking on Biff. You get the idea, right? This desire to take revenge, to make things even, to take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it's embedded deep within us, and it's even in the stories that we tell to our children. And even better, it's in Scripture. So it's even biblical. So it's also got that going for it. Leviticus 24, 19 to 20 says, If anyone injures his neighbor, whatever he has done must be done to him. Fracture for fracture. So I guess if you break someone's arm, you get your arm broken. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has injured the other, so he is to be injured. 
And this even includes death. Verse 17 says, If anyone takes the life of a human being, he must be put to death. And there's an element of justice here that seems fair. You hurt someone, you should pay for that. It's how our justice system is set up in large part. And few would argue with that. So what in the world is Jesus talking about? What is he talking about? He says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist the evil person. And if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn your other cheek as well. If someone wants to sue you for your shirt, give him your cloak as well. We can imagine his audience hearing this, listening to this, and wondering, Jesus, what are you going on about here? What are you talking about? Jesus knows, of course, that while there's an element of justice in this age-old approach of an eye for an eye, there's a dark side to it as well. And there's a couple of elements to that. First, it often doesn't stop with getting even. As a small example, I see this from time to time in my own household my kiddos. It's not unusual for one kid to upset another by taking a toy or teasing or calling a name. I'm not talking about anyone in this room, though, so you're off the hook. (laughs) And then the one who was initially teased or called a name responds back by taking something back or calling a name back or even hitting their brother or sister. And then it should end there, right? We're even now, okay? You did something to me, I did something to you, we're done, right? That's, that should be it, right? But it isn't done, right? Because all we can remember is the most fresh injury. And so then you got to respond back and hit back or take another toy back or take this. And it goes back and forth, back and forth. An endless loop begins, but he, but she, but he, come on. It can make for a very long car ride. <laughs> make for a very long car ride. And we know that this doesn't happen just among children. It happens between adults. It happens between big kids. And it can cause great harm and pain and permanently fracture relationships when this loop of getting even never gets closed. And on an even larger scale, it can happen between groups of people, between communities, even among nations. And when that happens, it threatens to undo the world. As Gandhi famously put it, an eye for an eye makes the whole world go blind. And another element to this approach to justice, another element of the darker side of it, is that it generally requires us to do the deed back to the original perpetrator. So if we follow the Levitical model, which says if anyone takes the life of a human being, he must be put to death. It now requires us or someone on our behalf to kill that person. And so the deed happened not only the original time, but we have to do that deed again. And so it multiplies the evil that we see in the world. And sometimes we have the idea that if we can just take out the bad guys, that we'll rid the world of evil. We've heard this rhetoric used in our own national defense efforts. But if the way that we're ridding the world of evil is by doing the same things that the people we're seeking to do away with are doing, 
then you could argue that we aren't actually ridding the world of evil. Perhaps we're in danger of becoming the evil ourselves. We are now doing some of the same things that we profess to detest. And this approach of an eye for an eye doesn't require a change of heart, does it? You could just stand there and say, you did this to me, and now I'm going to do this to you. But Jesus is calling us deeper. What's happening in here, he's asking. And he says, in God's kingdom, the ends do not justify the means. If peace is our goal and reconciliation, then as many Buddhist teachers note, peace must be expressed on each step along the way, or we will never arrive. We'll never arrive at a destination that resembles anything like peace. So let's explore briefly what's going on in this text, because when we first hear it, it seems like Jesus is just asking us to get taken advantage of or just to get rolled over. In their excellent book, Jesus for President, Shane Claiborne and Chris Haw explore a little of the work that author and professor Walter Wink has done on Jesus' teachings here in Matthew 5. And they say that Wink points out that Jesus was not suggesting that people sadistically let other people walk all over them. Jesus taught enemy love with imagination. And Jesus gives us three examples of how to interact with our adversaries. And in each instance, Jesus points us toward disarming others. He teaches us to refuse to oppose evil on its own terms. He invites us to transcend both violence and passivity through a third way. Sometimes Jesus teaching here, or Jesus himself gets accused of just being passive. Well, that's just a weak approach to life. And if you want to go through life that way, you're going to get beat up and you deserve to. But Wink says there's something even deeper going on here. When hit on the cheek, turn and look the person in the eye. In the orderly Jewish culture, a person would hit someone only with the right hand. And if you would hit someone with the left hand, you could be uh, banished from the community for up to 10 days. And so if you're hitting someone with the right hand, and as Jesus specifies, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, how do you reach the right cheek of someone with your right hand? With a back slap, right? With a back slap. So that appears to be the kind of strike that Jesus is referring to. And this is the kind of blow that an abusive husband might do against his spouse. Or that a master would do to his slave. In other words, it's the kind of act that is meant for toward an inferior. It's not a blow among equals. But by turning the other cheek, the person makes the abuser look them in the eye. And the abuser can now only hit them with the fist as an equal. And so by turning the other cheek, you are saying, I am a human being made in the image of God, and you cannot destroy that. So Jesus seems to be saying, make sure the person looks into your eyes and sees your sacred humanity, and it will be increasingly more difficult for that person to continue hurting you. 
That's the first example. Second example, when someone drags you before the court to sue, the sue for the coat off your back, take off all your clothes and hand them over, exposing the sickness of their greed. Now, it was generally the case that only the poor were subject to this kind of abuse. But if the poor person who didn't have anything, how could they, what could they be sued for? Literally, the coat off their back, because that's all they own. And so this wasn't that unusual to happen to peasants who had lost everything, the wealthy landlords and tax collectors. And so here Jesus is telling folks in this impoverished condition who have nothing but the clothes on their backs to strip naked and expose the greed of the person who is demanding that of them. Nakedness was taboo for Jewish people. But the shame fell less on the person who was naked than on the person who was causing the nakedness and looking upon it. And so it's a brilliant suggestion Jesus has. And he's, it's a way of saying, you want my coat? You can have it. You can even have my undies. <laughs> but you can't take my soul. You can't take my dignity. And the third example, when someone makes you walk a mile with them, go with them another mile. And this one perhaps you've heard more about, or perhaps you've heard all of these suggestions, but in the ancient Roman world, Roman soldiers didn't have tanks or Humvees to carry their gear around, and it was not unusual for them to conscript, conscript a civilian to carry a pack with them. In military code, said they can do that for a mile, but no further. And Jesus says, if someone asks you to do that, don't do it begrudgingly. Do it enthusiastically, and in fact say, hey man, let's go a second mile. Let's keep going. And by doing that, you disarm them. And you show that they can't just take advantage of you. In fact, they want to spend even more time with you, perhaps befriending you. And perhaps that act of love and service could woo them into Jesus' movement of love. And so in each of these instances, Jesus teaches a third way. And so we see Jesus going beyond mere passivity and violence and uh, suggesting not just submission or assault, not just fight or flight, but a creative, imaginative approach to violence and to our enemies. And so we need a prophetic imagination that says evil can be opposed, but not on its own terms. But why does Jesus spend so much time on this? He suggests that enemy love is the only thing that can make a person like God. Perfect. Just be perfect. Like your heavenly father is perfect. But I think perfect there doesn't mean so much without blemish as unconditional. Right? Jesus says God causes the sunshine to happen on everyone, good and bad. God causes it to rain without taking note of who that rain is falling upon. God pours out his goodness unconditionally. When you act like that, you are acting just like God. Many of the earliest Christians refused to serve in the Roman military because they saw state violence as being at odds with their call to following the Prince of Peace. They said, we can't do this because of the teachings and the examples of Jesus. And Jesus says and invites us to do this because this is what God is like. So how do we creatively use prophetic imagination today? The story is told by John Deere 
not the tractor maker, but the Catholic priest and activist, so D-E-A-R. He tells about a time that he and some friends went to a river in Connecticut to witness against a nuclear submarine that would, had just been built and was being christened. And so there was a big military celebration. A lot of people from town, a lot of dignitaries were there to celebrate this nuclear submarine, the USS Rhode Island, at that point, the deadliest weapon ever created in the history of the world. And he and some friends got a little canoe, I think there was four of them, two to paddle and two to carry a banner and unfurl a banner at the right moment. The banner which said Trident, this was a Trident submarine. Trident is a crime, swords into plowshares. And they also had a roofing hammer, just in case they actually got close enough to the sub and could begin to disarm it peacefully. Sure, I want to take part in disarming a nuclear weapon, but... Yeah. <laughs> but they note that the sky overhead shone a clear, bright blue, and a cold breeze was blowing, and the river sparkled. So they lowered their canoe into the river, and they're paddling along. The current was fast, and we were clipping along the river, disregarding the police boats that were not flashing their lights and heading straight for us. They just kind of calmly kept paddling and paddling along. And he says, as they were getting closer to the dock of where this submarine was, he says, the absurdity of the situation hit me full force. Not the absurdity of being in this little canoe approaching a nuclear weapon, and not the absurdity of friends who were also protesting outside the entrance on land to this ceremony. He says, no, the full-scale monstrous absurdity, the total lunacy of the Trident submarine itself. There it stood right before us, decorated with flags. Lunacy indeed. Why do we need such weapons? What has happened to us as a people that we continue to build them? What must God think as we celebrate these instruments of death? He says, such thoughts ran through my mind as I shook my head in disbelief. But seeing is believing. There on the shoreline were not just one but two submarines, each the equivalent of 4,000 Hiroshima bombs. Each one 4,000 times the devastation that happened in Hiroshima. Each designed for first strike nuclear attack, each built at the cost of, anyone want to guess? Whoa. 2.2 billion. Well done. You win the prize. Is it good that you know? No. But he says, think about that, right? Think about what 2.2 billion dollars could buy otherwise. Housing for the homeless, food for the malnourished and the starving, health care, jobs, education, AIDS research, environmental cleanup. The trident submarine in its very existence violates God's commandments, thou shalt not kill and love your enemies. It also violates international law, prohibiting the construction and use of weapons of mass destruction. And yet here they are, and we continue to build more to reach a fleet, and I'm sure we've reached this by now, of 19 of these trident submarines. So they're paddling along, and they get close enough to unfurl their banner. And the crowd on the shore is kind of looking at these guys in their little canoe, right, next to this huge submarine. And they've got this banner unfurled that says, Trident is a crime. Uh, what was the second part? Swords into plowshares, because you listen to. Swords into plowshares. And as they're doing this, they're, as they're holding up their banner, and now the uh, Coast Guard boats are getting closer, and the police boats and the water are starting to get choppy, and they get knocked right out into the water. 
And he says, my swimming lessons from camp just came right back to me. The water was cold, but I just started swimming right towards that dock and right towards that submarine. And he said, as I swam, I paused and I called out, I am a Jesuit, a Catholic priest, and I work with the homeless and the poor. The trident is a sin, a crime against God and humanity. It robs the poor of the world. The billions spent on the submarine should be spent on housing, food, health care, and education. The trident is not something to celebrate. It is Auschwitz. It threatens to destroy the planet. For God's sake, please dismantle it. Learn the way of peace and nonviolence. And after he called out in that way, a specially equipped rubber police raft sped across the water and fished him out of the water and his friends, and they were taken to prison. And eventually they were released and instructed to appear in court a few weeks later. And he said, a police officer smiled at me and said, you know, we respect and admire you for staying at this, but you should know we think you're crazy. <laughs> and he says, we can't all swim out in front of Trident submarines, but we can all do something to witness for peace. Whatever challenges face us, each one of us can voice our hope for peace and justice for a world without Trident submarines and weapons of mass destruction. He says, whatever the tactic or action we take, we can do it with a good heart and with a loving disposition, knowing that the God of peace will take care of the outcome. As more and more of us clamor for peace, God's plan for a disarmed world will one day come true. And no doubt there are many other ways we need to love those that we might consider as enemies. Perhaps people in our personal lives. And maybe it's hard for us to even imagine. Who, who do I even have enemies? Who are my enemies? Perhaps we might think about those who it's hardest to get along with. Those who it's hardest for us to be around. Those perhaps who we disagree with on matters of faith or justice or politics. And I think we also need to creatively stand for peace and use the prophetic imagination described both by Jesus and in the story we just shared. In fact, today there'll be thousands of people marching in New York City around noon saying, today I am a Muslim too. I think that's a peaceful, creative way to march and to stand with those who are often framed as enemies in our culture and to say, I identify with these friends. I am one of them too. And so we need to interrupt this cycle of violence by demonstrating another way. And it's often a costly way. As Jesus himself modeled. It's not like people say, oh, you're doing this peacefully. You're doing this nonviolently. Let me now reciprocate. Right? That may happen. Right? But we have countless examples of history where that doesn't happen. And in fact, when we're doing this, often... It's to expose a greater injustice, and people don't react kindly to that kind of stuff being exposed. And so we have to train ourselves in body, mind, and spirit to be willing to walk this path of peace, which I think takes far more courage than the path of violence and retaliation, because that just happens naturally. And Jesus is asking us to act supernaturally with the help of the Holy Spirit. 
But you know, I'm like the woman in the story that Mark read for us. I want to go into the Jesus store and just put it on the counter and say, all right, Jesus, here it is. I want world peace. I want no more war. I want kids safe. I want everybody well fed. I want guns done away with. Take care of it, Jesus. But that's not how it works, and that's not the invitation. We cannot change the world all at once, but we can plant the seeds. We can plant the seeds in our own hearts, in our own homes, in our neighborhoods, and in our world. And by God's grace, we just might see peace and compassion begin to take root in us and in our world. Amen. And namaste. Between person and person, peace between spouses, 
peace between parent and child, the peace of Christ above all peace. Bless, O Christ, our faces. Let our faces bless everything. Bless, O Christ, our eyes. Let our eyes bless all they see. Amen, and go in peace. to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Holland Area Arts Council in downtown Holland. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org.